Hi there, my name's Ollie Lloyd and welcome to the Food Talk Show. On today's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Charlie, the founder of Charlie Bigham. So let me start by welcoming Charlie to the Food Talk Show and saying a big thank you for joining us. Thank you very much indeed, Ollie. So, um, Charlie, look, back in 1996, you had a crazy idea of setting up this business. Tell me what was going through your mind and what were you actually trying to do? So I think I came at starting a business, as many people do, which was as a frustrated consumer. I was living in London, uh, I had a you know, job, I was a management consultant, I was busy, uh, and I love food. And I was a frustrated consumer because, although I love cooking, occasionally I'd, I'd just come back after a, you know, a, a long day at work and there wouldn't be something for me uh, that I could prepare quickly. Uh, which didn't compromise on flavour and how it was made. So the sort of mi- I've never owned a microwave. There are horrible microwaves, microwave meals uh, full of nasty preservatives and additives and stuff that I would never dream of eating. And so I approached it and thought, well, maybe there is a way uh, to make uh, prepared food without compromising on taste and flavour and additives and all that stuff. Um, and that would address my need and, fingers crossed, a few other people's as well. I love it. Well, so st- starting starting with what what I call an actual problem, which some brands uh, fail fail to start with, um, and I suppose if you fast forward to today from that kind of vision of of trying to provide, you know, I suppose a, sol- a solution to to your needs, where where is the business today? Well, I think we're still doing the same thing, um, and I think what's happened in the interim, you know, this is year I think twenty seven now, so we've been around a while. What's happened in the interim is we've all got busier. And so the need for, you know, addressing that occasion uh, has, has, has got wider. And I think also the other thing that's happened in, in the intervening 25 years or so is that we've all become a bit more, more aware of taste. I think we're more demanding as a nation. Uh, we're very fortunate. There's sort of great, wonderful melting pot of food that we are, are, are in, in, in the UK with influences from all over the world. So our, we've been opened up to tasting new things. And the other thing, I think we've become more, more aware of, you know, what we put in our mouths, what that does to our sort of health and our happiness as well, I would say. So in, interesting, if you if I took, so what, what, what were your first products, the very first products you made? So if I go right back, we launched with three recipes, quite unusual, quite, you know, when I look back, quite peculiar. We did a zesty Caribbean lamb dish. We did a salmon with a, with a, with a fresh dill pasta and we did uh, some anchovies and stuff. All, all rather nice, actually. If you if you took that dish and the best comparison you had today towards that dish in terms of sort of recipe, what would be the real differences between those two dishes 27 years later? Well, we've moved uh, over that time. Our business has evolved a bit, as you'd expect. So when we started, um, the idea was that we would, if I'm, if, I can, if I'm allowed to use a sort of rest, slightly restauranty term, slightly posh restauranty term, we did what's called in the restaurant trade the mise en place. We did the preparation. When you go into a restaurant, you order some food, and then, like magic, if you think about it, 15 minutes later or so, 
uh, the food arrives on your plate and you know you can have six different people ordering six different things and they all arrive at the same time how restaurants manage to pull that off is they've done earlier in the day a lot of mise en place they've prepared the vegetables they've maybe made some sauces and then they can just pull it together in those 15 minutes between you placing your order and and you enjoying it at the table so when i when when we started our idea was to do that mise en place but not actually cooking so to begin with all of our meals needed to be cooked all of our food needed to be cooked um, in a pan you know, on top of on top of the the hob or the, the stove or whatever you want to call it, and where we've changed a little bit over time is now uh, the majority of our food now we do a little bit of food that it falls into that category, but the majority of our food now we put needs to be put in an oven uh, rather than cooked in a pan. So that's quite a big change. So so that would be that would mean different recipes today to how we made them all those years ago. In terms of flavours. Actually, things haven't changed that much. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I spend a lot of time in London and London is this, you know, wonderful in place of innovation and creativity when it comes to food. But actually, across the nation, it's surprising how little our tastes change over time. So one of our best-selling dishes we make, for example, is lasagna. Very, very delicious lasagna. Um, but actually, if you look 25 years ago, what was one of the best-selling dishes in the UK, prepared dishes, it would be a lasagna. And so, so just, to, just to pick up on that, so you're saying that so your lasagna from the old days, that actually needed to be actually cooked in order to be edible, is what you're saying. So they were raw? Well, we didn't, we didn't we, you know, 20 years ago, we didn't make lasagna. We've probably been making, we've been making lasagna for maybe 10 or 15 years. So, so we, we, we started... We started with what, what in the parlance is known, ready to cook this stuff, this idea of food prepared for cooking. Where, and, then, and then about 15 years ago, we started actually cooking food so that people could heat up our food in their oven at home. Never a microwave, always an oven. I love it. Well, I have to say, I'm, I'm with you on the kind of the hatred of microwaves. I, I, I only finally succumbed to a microwave a few years ago when it, it felt like a necessary thing with kind of heating up kind of and defrosting kind of baby's food and other things that was sort of pre-frozen and stuff. But yeah, you see, this is this is the interesting thing about microwaves. We, I, I, you know, we did a bit of research on microwaves at some point and it stuck with me. Uh, I, I think 70 percent of people who own a microwave never use it for cooking food they just use it for reheating uh interestingly baby food is very common and the other thing uh is cups of coffee which strikes me as a kind of weird thing do you do that do you have cups of coffee reheated in your microwave do you know i i i just i don't understand how you don't finish your cup of coffee i mean for me for me, one of the greatest pleasures in life is, 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 is that first cup of coffee and the idea that it wouldn't be empty at the end of it and I'd need to go back and heat it up. I just, I've never, my, my wife does it, I have to say, but I, I don't fall into that camp, you see. Um, but one of the things that interests me is that, you know, you seem to be kind of quite committed to innovation and, and you've got kind of a, you know, an ever-growing number of products. And yet, when you look at the sort of the market data, I think Nielsen estimate that depending on the market, somewhere between 50 and 70% of new products fail. After your 27 years of experience, 
What's your advice on how you ensure products don't fail? And I'm sure you've had failures over that period, but what, what are your lessons on what to do to avoid you know, product failure? What we try and spend a lot of our time doing is, 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 is you know, in the food industry, people talk about NPD, this new, new product development. Uh, we don't actually talk about NPD. We talk about NFD, which is new food development, because we're a food business. A lot of food businesses forget they're making food. Um, but actually, as more important, I would say, than our NFD, our new food development, is what we call our EFD, our existing food development. So what I'm very keen, uh, I'm always banging on to our chefs about, is rather than come up with lots of new ideas, as you say, statistics say, and the statistics are right, that a lot of those will fail. We must put a lot of effort into making our existing recipes better. So if we can make our fish pie, our best-selling dish we make, um, 1% better, that is actually a much more useful thing to do uh, than launching you know, a, a completely new dish. We do do some new dishes as well, as you've noted, but, but it is important. So my advice to people, and I think this probably cuts across, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's food or something else. Focus on your product or service about how do you make it better. Talk to your consumers uh, if you're a you know, consumer-facing business or, or your business customers if you're not. Talk to your, your consumers or your customers and say, how do we do what we already do? How do we do it better? It's a great question. I've got something that's, I've got a sort of um, poster that's irritating me all across London at the moment, which is a PG Tips um, poster. I don't know if you've seen it, but it says, it, so, it, so it's got a picture of, um, of the new logo, which they've obviously spent a fortune redesigning. And the strap line is perfect, just, but faster. And I have never, ever, ever in my life wondered why my tea doesn't brew faster. And I think it's, it's such an interesting comment you make because I do think you're right that so many people forget that in the end, so many businesses rely upon a small number of SKUs that are the bedrock of the business. And if you take your eye away from off those, if you don't constantly improve them, you miss the opportunity, don't you? Yes, and the, and the problem is innovation is exciting. You know, we all, I love doing new stuff. It's, it's like, oh, wow, we're doing new stuff. But we mustn't, we mustn't allow ourselves to be diverted uh, wholly by the, the excitement of new. Interesting. So well, just while we're on the subject of new, what are the new things that you think? Because obviously, I mean, I find, I find your product range interesting because I think, you know, you are appealing to quite a... I'm not necessarily, not necessarily a foodie audience, but a food aware audience. Um, I mean, what are the new trends you're leaning into that you think have potential scale? Well, I think we're not we're not a, we're not. So, I, I'm not that interested in sort of trying to you know chase the zeitgeist of of what the latest thing is. And oh gosh, everyone's doing you know Korean fermented food, so we better come up with uh, you know we better come up with some fermented dishes. I I, I think. I think there's 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 a you know there is a place for that to be done, you know in in in, in Soho in London absolutely I want to go out and so and I want to try I want to try some fermented food and you know that's because it's new and but but for us you know we're trying to sell our we're trying to sell our food across you know several thousand shops across up and down the length and breadth of the UK so that's that that's that's not right for us so I think what we're really focusing on is what's what's kind of the trend for us 
um, and it, 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 it's a continual trend, is this idea of people minding more and more about their food, um, being more conscious of where the food comes from, um, you know, how a business like ours, you know, how, how, how we, how, you know, again, some of the users of the industry, you know, jargon if you like but how you know what, what is our supply chain like do we know who our suppliers are do we care about our suppliers do we work with them do we just go and buy things in the market every day or do we actually is there real depth to our business do we do we go right down and, and you know work with the best suppliers in a long-term way treating them with respect and and and, and therefore getting all the advantages of their specialist knowledge on each each individual ingredient into our food and of course it is the latter we do we do not go and just horse trade in the market and buy what's available that day or the cheapest we're, we're actually you know I, my, myself and Patrick my CEO you know we go and spend loads of times with our, with our suppliers really get to know with them and, and, and work for the long term and I think that so, so I think that is to, in my mind that's a sort of interesting relevant trend to us is is to sort of if you like, get more obsessive about what you do and understand it better. And, and it's not just in terms of the food dimension. And does it take? You know, is this a really fantastic quality product we're buying? But actually, increasingly, I think uh, it's really important for all of us in the world for us to understand um, the sustainability impact of what we do. And so that's very important too. And again, we have to kind of get deep into our our supply chain and understand uh, what our suppliers are doing on that front. Do you, I mean, I, I remember hearing you talk about that before, being sort of very inspired by your kind of obsession with the kind of, I'm going to call it the marginal ingredients within the mix. It's not just the mince and the lasagna. I think you referenced a, a, a parsley grower um, who you were particularly um, enamoured by. I suppose I'm I'm interested because lots of businesses that I, I work with sort of, I think, struggle with this in the early days in the sense that if you do have third party manufacturing, finding a way to get the right ingredients to come to the right negotiations. Do you think this is something that can only be done with a certain scale like you guys have nowadays? Or do you think this is something that you've been true to all along? Uh, I know, I, I think you do need a certain scale. And it's kind of and I think you might have heard me talk because I talk about it. I, 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 you know, witter on about it as an example. Our parsley, you know, when I started uh, this business, you know, we, we would have to go to the market every morning and buy our parsley, and we were only buying a handful of bunches of parsley. So we just took what was there, and it was quite often because I wasn't very good at getting up at two in the morning and being there the first there. It was quite often, the, you know, the the, the 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 sort of dog ends of what was left in the market by 5am which I thought was quite early enough and, and, and it varied day to day it came from different growers and some days it was good and some days it wasn't very good and, 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 and but now you know as we've grown what we've chosen to do is we've chosen to use some of the benefits you know of being bigger that we can be more demanding of our suppliers and now as you, you heard me talk about we now have a very lovely uh, dedicated parsley supplier uh, Joe down in Kent who goes the parsley specially for us it's harvested every day um, you know and we're, we're talking to him on a daily basis him and his team about you know making sure we're getting the very best parsley the very freshest parsley coming in and it's really consistent you know day in day out and to, so one of the things I've been very impressed by by Tony's Chocoloni is how they've kind of I think sort of leaned in to opening up their supply chain to other people 
and encouraging other people to use the cocoa that they're using so that actually the greater impact is there. Are you trying to work with businesses in a way whereby you're sort of, you know, open to connecting people with suppliers who actually can help them also source more interesting, you know, ingredients? Well, I, I, and I don't know the detail. I mean, I think, you know, Tony's Chocolate, great business, really interesting, and they do some fantastic things. I didn't know about that, 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 that initiative, but, I, 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 you know, that sounds fascinating. Obviously, they're slightly different business to us in terms of we are buying, um, you know, 150 different ingredients every day. I, I'm imagining that Tony's Chocolate might buy a few fewer than that <laughs> and 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 in some ways they're trading in a commodity market for their cocoa I'm, I'm guessing I'm not an expert on chocolate but and so there's kind of you know it's quite limited I I, I, I guess the, the the equivalent for us would be well if we were buying milk from one type of supplier then we might say well gosh we found a really good way that someone's you know doing their milk and we could we make that available to other people it's not there isn't a there isn't a very neat equivalence there i don't think it's interesting though because i think there are a group of food brands and you're probably one of the bigger ones who are trying to do business in a more joined up sustainable i mean sustainable for me is, is, is a complicated word but i think it's it's not just about sustainability in terms of the environment. I think, you know, it does sound like the way you're working with suppliers and nurturing relationships is, is, is more joined up. I mean, it, you are, I, I sense, trying to think about the business in a much more long-term way than what is characteristically kind of like the, the build for exit model. Yes, well, we don't have any plans to exit. Uh, you know, as I said, we're, this is year 27, so we've been around a, a lot a while and um, plan to be around um, a good while longer. And I think one of the things that's informed that, I mean, I've, I've, it's not a new decision, it's not a new thing that that, that that was a decision I made a long time ago. But what's quite interesting is we do have quite a few European suppliers. Um, we buy lots of stuff from the UK, but there are some things that are best uh, bought from slightly further afield when it comes to, you know, we don't produce a lot of olive oil or tomatoes in the UK. So we do work with quite a lot of European family businesses, typically, you know, third, fourth generation businesses. And it's really interesting. It's very interesting for me when I go and spend time with those businesses is, is, is understanding the benefits you get from really long term thinking. Uh, I like it. I like, I like these businesses who are thinking with 10, 15, 20 year horizons rather than one or two year horizons. I think, I think you, you end up. Uh, with a better business and 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 uh, you know better product. Do you know it's interesting? I I when I was running Great British Chefs, I went to uh, meet Paolo Barilla. I think he's the fifth generation um, leader of the Barilla business, and and I and I was interviewing him in his um, in his boardroom, and he said he took me to the window and he said, "Do you see that that train line?" Uh, and I said, "Yes." He said, "We built that." in order to allow us to transport our products by rail um, and to connect into the main network. And he said, it was, it's got a 50-year payback. He said, but I own this business, the family owns this business, and that's how we think. And it's just, you know, you, you know it's so rare that you, you're, that you hear that kind of thinking. But I think you're right. Some of the European family, I mean, certainly my experience, food businesses, do think like that and it is very refreshing and I think very interesting yeah and I personally think we need more of it in the UK 
you know, if I'm, you know, I have a few soapboxes I like to climb on occasionally. <laughs> and one of them is is trying to say, you know, I think, you know, private equity and, and, and all of that has its place. And, 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 you know, of course, people have got the right to build and, and sell businesses. But uh, I, I think it's, I, I think it would be great if there were, there were more uh, long-term thinking businesses um, in the UK, you know, uh, as I think they can be the, uh, a very powerful engine of growth and prosperity. Uh, you know, the classic example being, you know, in Germany, uh, they have some, there's some, there are lots of businesses. I can never remember what they're called, the Mittels somethings. Um, and, and, you know, I think it'd be good, good, good in the UK if we had a few more. So what's an example for you of, of that kind of long-term thinking where you're making decisions that are not about this year's P&L, but about the long-term sustainability or long-term viability impact of the, of the business? Well, seven years ago, we, you know, we were a growing business, so we do run out of space every now and again, and we have to find new space. And seven years ago, we, we, we ran out, we could see ourselves running out of space. I thought, well, gosh, we need a new building. And I thought, well, we'll just do what we've always done. We'll go and find another warehouse around the corner, make, you know, lease a warehouse, uh, make it as nice as we can. It won't belong to us, so we'll work with the landlord and, and make it as nice as we can, and, 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 and you know, rent somewhere for fifteen or twenty years. Um, and and then we kind of thought about it, and we went and looked at various sites and met landlords, and and, and they would didn't really want to come with us on our vision of making an, a, an extraordinary kitchen, which is what we wanted to do. And so we decided as we went through that process that actually we'd buy some land. And, uh, and build our own kitchen from scratch, um, which is what we did. So we bought an old quarry uh, down in Somerset, um, which is a sort of magical location. We're surrounded um, by you know hundred foot cliffs, and we have peregrine falcons flying around, and twenty acres of wildflower meadow. And we built this extraordinary building, um, which won a Reba Architectural Award, and that is where we make seventy percent of our food today. And it's an extraordinary site, and that that is I haven't even calculated what the payback on it is, but it's probably at least twenty five years. Um, and but that's because we plan to be around for twenty five years and beyond. And it's fantastic having a building which is we've designed. It's for us. It ticks all the boxes. It's completely aligned with our our brand values. And it's an inspiring and wonderful place to work and make delicious food in. And how many people are down there now? Because I'm assuming there aren't, I mean, how many, how many food factories are there in, in that area? I assume some, but not many. Well, well we, don't, we don't have a food factory. We have a big kitchen. Uh, there are a few other people who make food down there because the southwest is a fantastic, you know, um, centre of excellence for sort of, um, you know, food sort of if you like more sort of producer led food um, but uh, we've got 400 people working in that kitchen um, and we think and that will grow over time and essentially you, you picked me up on the use of the word factory I mean you, you you are still making small batch aren't you yeah absolutely yeah we, we that's absolutely key um, you know to us is we make everything in small batches so we do make quite a few fish pies now um, but we make our fish pie 10 times a day, uh, 10 small batches rather than one big batch, because it's by making small batches that we can control 
the quality so it means that every you know every ingredient that goes in somebody's looking at it making sure it's right um, uh, as we make it and we're tasting each batch as we go in fact on you know on our fish pie we have two different people taste each batch we make to make sure that it's right so we've got really really tight control um, over what we what we're doing and it's it's by doing that that we think we make ultimately better food but you're making a margin sacrifice by making those decisions and is, is your but i mean you know, in the sense that look I me mean, well, the theory goes that scale you know if you made your fish pie once a day rather than 10 times a day um you could produce a, a, a lower cost base i mean is it your belief based upon your experience that is just not there are there, within with food production there is a sort of a limit to how big you can make them before you start to lose quality absolutely absolutely i think as soon as you remove as, as soon as you remove people entirely from the process so if we were a different sort of business which i'm glad to say we're not yeah that fish pie would be made once a day or maybe once every two or three days probably because people would find a way to put some chemicals into it and make it last a bit longer and which we don't do so it'd probably be made once every three days uh, in a huge batch and it would be all about pressing buttons and and things being sucked from one one place to another and 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 it would and if you walked in it would smell weird and look weird and you wouldn't you wouldn't be in a kitchen you would be you'd feel you were in some sort of scary dystopian sort of industrial process of making this thing that's sort of half food we don't want to do that it's interesting isn't it because i think if you go back to the sort of 70s maybe early 80s you know there was this sort of I mean, dream, and it's clearly for both you and I, nightmare, that kitchens would no longer exist, that food would be all manufactured and, and, and produced everywhere else, and that actually all the pleasure and tactility of food was just going to kind of, was going to vanish. And it, it, it is interesting how, despite your scale, because you are, you know, a, a, a large food brand, you know, that is growing rapidly, um, you're holding true to those principles. And I don't think many do. I think that is one of those kind of, tipping points that people lose that yeah but you know obviously the reason the reason we do you know it's a little bit to do with me and what I want to do and, and and the rest of the team here what we want to do what we believe in but ultimately if it was just us that believed that was valuable we that we, we, we it would be a disaster if we were the only people who thought that but we do we luckily there are quite a lot of consumers who who share our view and as, as I said earlier I think an increasing number of consumers who share our view that actually you know it is worth taking real time, real time and care and attention uh, with with the food we eat. We want to be mindful of what we're eating, and that means you want to be buying buying stuff from someone you can trust to be doing things the right way, not the wrong way. It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, I'm sure you you follow as we all do, kind of some of the developments in the kind of alternative meat spaces, in the kind of you know, I, I'm going to call it. Well, I mean, I think where the ultra processed meets theoretically the ultra healthy. And in my opinion, those two worlds do not collide nicely. Um, I was, I, I would entirely agree with you. <laughs> and I, I find it quite scary, actually, which is, you know, the sort of, and I think there is a reason why the alt meat category has, has sort of slightly fallen off a cliff in the last couple of years is because, you know, you do look at the back of the packs and 
you know, I'm no scientist. I have no idea what these things are. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I mentioned my soapboxes a moment ago that another of my soapboxes I like to clamber up on, uh, you know, on a regular basis is, is to have a tirade against, you know, fake meat. Um, I have nothing against people eating more vegetables, uh, plant-based diets. I think that's absolutely fantastic. In fact, I think it's necessary for the sustainability of the, of the planet going forwards. However, I think fake meat is, is a terrible thing, if I'm honest. It's a terrible thing. It's the most processed food you can buy in the market today. I, I'm, I'm personally absolutely certain that it will be doing immeasurable harm to people who are consuming significant quantities of it. And, and you know, I, ha- I will have nothing to do, do with it, and we will have nothing to do with it as a business. I, I think it's... It, 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 it's wrong and it's it's scary and it is the, it's the very definition of ultra processed food and I think it's fascinating some of the research that's coming out now on ultra processed food and, and showing quite how harmful that, that is to people's health Totally, I mean it is interesting someone once said to me there are three types of vegan food there is the vegan food that you know, often Indian food is naturally vegan because of the way they cook it. Um, there is food where you can make some very minor modifications and without too many problems, you have a vegan dish. And then there are things where you try and create something that basically can only be made with animal products and you try and make it vegan. And it's that third category that is where the real danger sits because it just isn't... Well, you end up with things that, in, in my, my humble view, are not food. But, you know, that is... Uh... <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the, the interesting one, one of the ones that I, I work a lot with actually is the insect guys. There's a business I work with called Yumbug, who, um, who are actually pioneering the development of, of cricket-based meat, which is more sustainable than, than, you know, than, than beef and lots of other stuff. And I think it's super interesting because it is meat and it's, you know, you can't deny that it's meat, but it's, more, it's a more sustainable source of it. And it's not full of crazy stuff because in the end it's just crickets and, you know, you know. No, I think insects. I think insect protein is is, is very fascinating. I mean, you, you know, you mentioned crickets. I mean, crickets, cockroaches. I mean, in some ways, what they are is they're they're land based prawns, aren't they? Yep, <laughs> that that is that is actually one. Of, and you know, and weirdly, actually, if you are allergic to prawns, you are allergic to crickets. They are they do share the same. Um, issues, which is which is which is fascinating. Um, one of the things that I'm also struck by in your business is you you do seem to be a business that has a very deep relationship with retailers, um, and I don't feel you've kind of followed the current zeitgeist of being obsessed with building a D to C model. Tell me a bit about your views on on the roles of, of brands and retailers and those relationships versus the kind of the D to C bandwagon. Um. Would we love to? Would we love to have? Would we love to have a DTC business? Yes, I would. Wouldn't that be lovely? Because then we could communicate with our consumers directly rather than via an intermediary, um, i.e., the, the retailers. Uh, the problem with fresh food and DTC is it just doesn't really stack up. Um, the the cost of delivery at, to someone's house is is quite high. And also, most of us, when we do our food shopping, and if we want it delivered to our house, and I'm, I, I like shopping online myself, you kind of want somebody to... You, it's quite useful if somebody is your aggregator, so to speak, and, and delivering not, you know, three, thing, three different products, but a hundred different things, uh, giving you your full shop. 
so I think for us, you know, when we we've sort of you know thought about doing DTC several times over, and whenever we look at it, it just it just doesn't stack up. The cost of delivering to people's houses is is too high. Uh, so uh, you know, we'd have to have a large minimum order, and then our food is fresh, and then people couldn't eat it in the time available. You know, so etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It doesn't. It just doesn't work. Uh, which means that we, we, it's really, really important for us to work with the guys who sit in the middle, um, who are our retail partners, and, and we get on very well with them. We work very closely with them. I think they do an extraordinary job. Um, they you know, pick up our food and distribute it around the country all in a matter of hours. Um, you know, it, it's pretty extraordinary what they do. Interesting. I mean, it, it is... Um it does beg the question, I mean, and I'm, I'm not going to draw you on, on, on other people's business models, but it does, it is interesting how the truth is all the recipe box businesses have been fueled by extraordinary levels of investment um, from the markets. And I'm not totally sure whether any of them are going to get to sustainability. It's very, very hard. I mean, we keep a you know, I, I keep an interested eye on it, I guess, because it's, you know, we have some crossover. Uh, I haven't seen um, any, a set of numbers yet out of anybody's business that convinces me that it's a, it, 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 it's a very, you know, sound business proposition. I mean, they've got a very, you know, some big top line numbers. Um, and, you, you know, you might occasionally find someone who says they're making an operating profit. Um, but I'm not sure if there are many businesses in that space making a sustainable profit. And I know, you know, people sometimes get hung up and say, gosh, well, business isn't all about making a profit. And it's kind of, no, of course it's not. But businesses do need to make a profit um, to thrive in the long term and, and, and you know, reinvest in, them, in their, their, their business, their, their, their reinvest, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, profit is an important part of the mix. And um, I always, you know, call people up if they say really do we need to bother making a profit it's like yes we do but also let's be clear if you're taking your money from private equity they are not they are not motivated by you know some kind of interesting business school case study where they prove that there's an alternative distribution model to retailers they are in this purely ultimately for a return so you know, while I'm fine with, you know, charities setting up models that are purely about, you know, making a, a societal impact and, and finding a way to bring in the grants, that is not the fuel that is firing the, the kind of the food box world, is it? No, and of course, you know, those, I mean, I, I very interesting, you know, what some of those businesses do, and I, and, and, and I think they've you know, built extraordinary um, businesses in terms of scale. But most most of the investment is it's an investment for we'll we'll grow it a bit and then we'll we'll move it on to the next guys and hopefully make a turn on it you know at that point they're not they're not there for the long term I, I suspect no it is interesting so I suppose you know, I mean one of the things that you know does come through is you know you're twenty seven years in and and saying you know you're 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 in this for the long term what keeps you I and mean, obviously I'm hoping you're not you're not going to the market at two in the morning anymore sourcing your 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 parsley um what is it that keeps you kind of passionate about about what you're doing here i think it's it's two things i i do i do genuinely love food i love i love 
learning about food, I learn something new virtually every day about food because it's such a vast space crossing over into all sorts of things. So I love learning about food. I love eating food, buying food, cooking food. So, you know, I'm very, very lucky to be in a business that I genuinely love. Um, the other, so that's one thing, you know, gosh, what a great, what a lovely way to spend, spend your day kind of around food. Um, but the other thing I think on, on the longer term, I, I, and, and, you know, we talk about in, in our business is we have this, we have this ambition to, to become what I've termed a beacon business. And I have to be careful about saying this because it sounds sort of arrogant, probably. But what we, uh, we're not there yet, but what we aspire to being is a business that has ploughed its own furrow. You know, we've done things our way and fingers crossed one day we'll be, you know, I think we're a good business today. We, we aspire to being a great business. And if we get to being a great business, sort of one of the things I'll know that if we do ever get there, when we, it will be when people are looking in from the outside, not just from the food industry, not just from the UK, uh, and saying, that's an interesting little business. Hmm, like to understand. They seem to have sort of, you know, carved out a quite an interesting space for themselves and done things a bit differently. I wonder if we could learn anything from them. And so that's who I'd love. I'd, that would be for me... Yeah, that would be fantastic if we ever got to that. So we're going to have a go at getting there. Excellent. And, and look, final question. So you talk about your passion for food and it being one of the things that, that keep you going. Beyond, obviously, eating your own products, which I'm sure you do on, on some occasions, what is your kind of, you know, the, the, the signature Charlie dish on, on a Friday night? Well, hmm, that's, a, that's an, <laughs> it's an interesting question. I love variety, so I cook a lot of different things. And for me... The real part of the joy is opening the fridge and I, at home and, and and sort of opening the fridge. Oh, oh, there's not much to cook in here, and sort of closing it and then opening it again and saying, okay, well, look, I've got there's a little bit of there's a couple of chicken thighs. There's a there's some oh, there's an aubergine down the bottom. You know, there's an aubergine there and there's a bit of there's a bit of like, like Greek Greek yogurt there and I've got you know, I've got some spices over there and sort of just creating putting it together and creating something um, quite often for the first time based on, on what's available. So I love cooking like that. I love cooking like that. Um, if I was to sort of have a planned meal, um, I, 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 I particularly like Middle Eastern food and probably because I'm quite greedy and Middle Eastern food is, is, is often about putting, you know, not one plate of food on the table, but six or ten different dishes and, and then helping yourself in a sort of nice relaxed way um and eating a little bit more food than you should i love it the the, the approve approve point that actually food is, is actually about relaxing as well so i like the idea that you, you do you still find cooking relaxing at the end of the day i love cooking yeah yeah i love cooking love it Brilliant. Well, listen, Charlie, thank you so much for joining me today and sharing your insight. And I have to say, from, from my perspective, you know, I do think you're building a beacon business. And I think that, you know, certainly from what you're doing for the food world, there is a lot for other people to learn from what you're doing. Well, Ollie, very lovely to chat to you. Thank you very much indeed.
Thanks for listening to The Food Talk Show. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do follow us on LinkedIn or subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts.